Thanks for tuning into Upward Way podcast. If you're looking to be spiritually blessed, moved and inspired, there is no doubt you are in the right place. On our show, guests recount their encounter with Christ and how their lives have been transformed through the grace and love of God. And now, please welcome our host. Hello and welcome to Upward Way. I am your host, Marlon Walters. My guest today is the former president of the South England Conference of Seventh-day Adventist Churches, Pastor Samuel Davis. Welcome to Upward Way. Thank you. Thank you, Marlon. It's good to be here with you. Yes, it's really a joy to have you here. And I can say to the listeners that you are in for a treat because Pastor Sam, as he's affectionately called, you know, he's full of energy. You may hear the word retired, but when you look at him and you <laughs> hear him speak, there's nothing that suggests that he's retired. I think we usually say back home that, you know, you are retired, <laughs> so to speak. Anyway, Pastor Sam, could you just share a bit with us about your overall background? Not so much your faith background, but your own background, you know. Where did your life begin? That kind of a thing. How were things for you growing up as a child? And then we will just continue from there. Well, um, I was born in Jamaica. And um, I, you know, I was there for four siblings born in Jamaica. My parents, my dad, first of all left us and came to England back in the early 60s. I think he may have come around about 60, 62. Shortly thereafter, my mother followed him. And so we were left with a family in Jamaica. And that really was a a difficult time for us uh, as kids. You know, let me just say it did not go well (laughs) as far as we were concerned. And um, then my mother came back and brought us to England. So our separation time for our parents was really around about two or three years uh, from my mother. And that was not too long. So we, but when I talked to others who have been on the same journey, they, they were let, left for much longer. So uh, we came to England back in 1965. Uh, so my schooling and everything took place here really in the United Kingdom. My professional life was uh, here in the the UK, and so really that's 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 my life. And then you know when when it came towards retirement, I I really felt that I wanted to be in the sun again, and so I've chosen Spain uh, because it's nearer to, to the UK. I can get back here quickly for family. I've got six grandchildren. I've got my uh, my daughter and my son was here he died recently but you know it's it's close enough we can get back and so we're here probably three or four times a year let me just express my condolences to you on the loss of your son i can't imagine what that that is like but you seem to be you know dealing with things as they by by god's grace by god's grace amen you spoke about you know that period of separation, though not long, but obviously you'd have had vivid memories. So for children, because this is something that is still ongoing, not just as it relates to persons from Jamaica Mm -hmm. or from the Caribbean, but globally, it is something that goes on because we talk about, you know, opportunity in different countries and that kind of thing. But walk us through a little bit like, you know, what goes on in the mind of a child or in children when they know that their parents are there, but they are not really there because there's this big separation by <laughs> land and sea, whatever it is, you know, what goes on in the mind of a child? I think that uh, for me, you know, we were conscious of the fact that my parents were not there, but it wasn't something like we were pining or longing for our parents, but we we would get excited as children when my auntie would say, oh, your dad has sent this for you or your mum sent that for you. Um, but we we really were not being told the full story. We weren't being told the half. And I do know that the separation, it's only once we were reunited with our parents and then we, and we really understood what with the impact 
of being away from them because, as I said, uh, I remember the meanness. I remember the hunger, uh, you know, cutting up one onion to share between me and my siblings and, and so on, which we would never have done that with my with my parents around, you know. So even though we we were poor and the decision that my parents made to go to the mother country, the UK, uh, to make a better life for us was, uh, I think, as I as I look back, I would say it was worth the sacrifice because when I go back to Jamaica and I see my cousins, my aunts and so on, then I have to say, yes, this was a worthwhile investment. And, you know, anything in life that is worth having, you have to go through, make some sacrifices. Uh, it will be uncomfortable, but I would say 100% worth uh, the sacrifice. Yes, that is something we really can digest. So as you say, it wasn't all dandy to begin with. And there would have been early challenges, but as you say, if it's worth a sacrifice, then we should embrace it. So I want you know to talk with us a bit about you know your faith. I mean, you are a retired pastor, so you have yes it all. But you know, were you brought up in the faith? You know, were you brought up as a Christian? Were you brought up in a secular environment? What was that spiritual foundation like for you? Or you know, when right. did things okay. you know kick off? Well, as far back as I can remember, I've always been a Seventh-day Adventist. You know, my parents were Adventists, but it's not been a direct path. You know, every Christian has their struggles. And I remember we came to England. At, I was I was the age of eight when I came. And um, my dad had given up the faith. He was no longer uh, in the church. And as time went on, I remember saying to myself this this church thing is killing me man it's cramping my style and I was 10 years old I and so I made a decision that I was leaving the church and my rationale at the time was daddy's not going so he's not interested what I do he won't care whatever I do and mama won't be strong enough to to stop me from going so I just made that decision I'm leaving I wanted to play football for the school on sabbath and church was just cramping my style. And so the decision was made. And, you know, it's as if the Lord had heard my decision-making process, and my dad got very, very sick, uh, to the point of almost dying, you know. And when he recovered, my dad decided to give his life back to the Lord. And from the moment my dad gave his life back to the Lord, and he, he and my mom were working walking in the same way i never had those thoughts again you know just disappear, <laughs> disappear. so i think that i have a lot to uh say you know with my dad uh making that decision that had a, a profound in, in, impact on on my life but some of the struggles growing up in in the church you know uh there was a time when um at the age of uh 10 i was smoking you know, and back in back in those days, you could walk into the shop and you could buy cigarettes single, and there were no restrictions on the age that you could buy. You know, so nowadays they will not sell cigarettes to you under eighteen, uh, but back in there, as a ten-year-old, I could walk into the shop with my ill-gotten money because I would get that money out of my mother's purse without permission. And um, I went and I bought my cigarette. I bought a cigarette holder. And I just felt really cool, you know. Uh, and I remember being in school, smoking the cigarettes in the toilets with my friends. And somebody went and told my teacher. And so uh, he walked into the toilet and marched us up to the classroom, sent us up to the classroom to wait for judgment hour. And uh, he came up and then he said to us, well, how would you like me to deal with this, you know? Um, do you want me to send home and tell your parents or do you want me to deal with it myself? Bear in mind, this is 1967. Parents have never heard of child abuse. You know, so we knew that we were dead men walking. If, if they sent that message home to my parents, I'd be dead. <laughs> so we just said, you deal with it. You deal with it. So he dealt with it that day. You know, he had very thick paintbrushes. And I think we got one of the thickest paintbrushes on our rear that day. 
And I was so grateful that my parents were not told that I was smoking and that my life was spared, so to speak. <laughs> so I vowed I would never smoke again. You know, I said, Lord, I will never smoke again. Now, the impact of that was very, very profound for me because fast forward to at the age of 16, I'm standing in the playground, 15, 16, I'm in the playground at school and the weed has come into the playground. And the guys were smoking the ganja. They're telling you, you know, the wonderful properties that this could infuse into them. They could beat up everybody in the playground at the same time uh, and so on. But that was not a struggle for me because I'd already fought that battle at the age of 10 and said, I will never smoke again. So I wasn't interested. And there are many times I look back on my life and I say, Lord, how did I come through that period? Because, you know, at an era where... It was almost like a rite of passage for every young black guy to be smoking the weed. And I saw the consequences of that uh, in terms of the mental damage, the, the guys ending up in mental institutions, suicide, all that sort of thing, the impact it had on young men. And so the Lord delivered me from that because of that decision that I'd made at the age of 10. And so I'm answering your question in terms of my spiritual journey, because even though I was in an Adventist home, I still had my struggles. And so uh, at the age of uh, 15, I'm addicted to gambling. You know, I'm so addicted that, uh, you know, we we had this game where we, you, you'd throw coins at the wall or coins at the line, and then the person who was the winner would uh, pick up the coins and throw them in the air and the coins that came down on heads you would take and so on and the next person and so I was just addicted to that I would gamble my dinner money and remember I'm, I'm I am free lunch at school we were that poor uh, but I would uh, sell my meal ticket and get the cash uh, and gamble the money my parents would give me bus fare uh, to get home, and I'd gamble away the bus fare and and walk walk to school and walk home. <laughs> and I am, you know, 14, 15, and crying out to the Lord for deliverance. Trust me, I'm, you know, I did not like it. There was a, a, a dichotomy between my faith and uh, knowing what was right and what I was doing. And I just said, Lord, you know, please deliver me. And I took one of the school holidays, this we, you know, the six-week school holiday, and I, I vowed that I would never gamble again. This was going to be uh, a turning for me. I would use this opportunity not to gamble, and the six weeks just gave me. You know, they they say that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, and the new pathways in the brain was formed. You know, just just that six weeks away from that activity. So when I went back to school in the new year and they knew that I was a man for the game, you know, they're calling me, Sam, come over. You know, we, we've got a game on. No, thank you. I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, and the Lord delivered me from that particular habit. And there was the struggle with unclean foods. Again, if I go back to the age of 10, I, you know, I grew up as an Adventist, so there was nothing you could tell me about Leviticus 11. But when I walked into that dining room and I saw the pork sausages, the big fat pork sausages, um, I said to the lady, you know, is there any beef in there? And she mumbled something like, yes. And that was it, 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 just a big invitation for me. And so I started eating unclean foods and, uh, you know, the guilt of it. And and yet at the same time, you know, we it's not something that we would eat at home. But I would rationalize, so I'm eating pork sausages, I'm eating spam. I don't think they do it nowadays, but uh, the spam. And I would not eat the bacon because that, that was the real thing. You know, I could see that that was pork. But <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm, I've got these struggles. And uh, I'm also crying out to the Lord for deliverance. And at the age of 15, I'm, I'm in church and I listen to a presentation from the health director of the conference and uh i made a decision to become a vegetarian and so the lord delivered me from that and my parents uh, they never did become vegetarians but they felt sorry for me and so you know christmas would come and they would say sam 
you can't sit around the table and not have no no meat. You know, it's, it's Christmas, so I'd have uh, the turkey. I'd join them in the turkey at Christmas. And I did this for two years, and then I think I said to them, look, this is nonsense. Just give me my, my, my meatless stuff. I'm not eating any more meat. And so, uh, you know, I had then resolved I'm not eating any of that stuff anymore. So the Lord delivered me. And uh, I think the, the my, my final struggle again was uh, foul language, you know, because coming from Jamaica, uh, this was a cultural shock for me because we were very respectful to our elders, you know, you have manners to our elders. And so when I came to school in England, I saw the level of disrespect that the children had for the teachers. They're running around the classroom and they're mouthing the teachers and so on. And uh, I was shocked because I know back in the 1960s in Jamaica, you get beats <laughs> doing those things, you know, from the teachers. And uh, so it was a big cultural shock for me. And I think the biggest shock was the the profane, profane language that was being used. What the shock that what shocked me even more was one day when a boy swore at me and I used the same swear word back at him, you know, because this was uh, completely alien to me. And uh, so as time progressed, as I got older, uh, I began to use some vegetarian swear words, you know, to, to compensate uh, and so on, until the Lord eventually delivered me uh, from the use of those um, words. And I remember I started an apprenticeship uh, at the age of 16, 17. Uh, and so when I went onto the building site now, I'm going into the world of men and uh, the Lord put me in with these guys and I was really surprised at the way they talked and everything. So one day I, I said, why do you guys swear so much? You know, you, you keep stop cut out the swearing, you know? And they said, well, we've heard you swear, Sam. I said, no, you've not heard me swear. I'm a Christian. I don't swear. He said, yes, yes, I've heard you swear. So I said, no, sir, I don't swear. So um, one guy said, I'm a Christian. And I said, well, no, you're not a Christian because I'm, I'm new. I, I'm kind of uh, a young Christian, I'm naive, and uh, I'm saying to this guy, because I've heard the, the kind of language and the, his behavior, I said, no, you're not a Christian. And he said, yes, I am a Christian. And I said, no, you're not a Christian. And then when he was about to beat me up, I said, all right, you're a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and then my my foreman, uh, you know, we were we were do doing up some flange because I went into engineering, uh, central heating on a large scale, the commercial scale. And so one day we're across this big six inch pipe. We're tightening up the flanges uh, with a spanner. And, a sp and and yeah, he had said to me, so, Sam, what do you do? Uh, you know, um, when when if a spanner slips or you bang your your you bang your finger with with the hammer. And I said, well, I just say, ouch. So he said, no, no, no. So anyway, we're across the flange from each other and we're tightening up and the spanner that day slipped and hit me in the chest. And um, man, that day, I never even said, ouch. I just looked at him. He looked at me and he knew that I wasn't swearing. <laughs> so uh, the Lord really, uh, as, a, as a young Christian, you go into that environment, you know you're a witness. You know that you're standing up. Uh, you're a Joseph, you're a Daniel. And the Lord was with me uh, as I grew up. And it was out of that experience at the age of 18, while I was doing my apprenticeship, that uh, the Lord called me. I was a youth leader in the church. I was a choir leader uh, and so on. And, you know, I was just sitting in the back of the church and I heard, you know, the voice of the Lord speaking to me. And he said, if you do not work for the Lord full time, you will never be fulfilled in your life. You'll never be fulfilled. And so that was my call to ministry at the age of 18. I was already doing my apprenticeship and I decided to continue to finish the apprenticeship. And then once I was finished, I would uh, then go and study for the ministry. Wonderful. Quite a lot <laughs> that you have just um, unfold before us and uh, already things are sounding pretty exciting. So, before you continue along the path of, you know, entering into ministry, I know sometimes even though parents would want their children to be spiritually strong and spiritually firm, when you say, you know, I'm going to take up ministry and not maybe law 
or maybe medicine and so on. You know, sometimes family members or even parents, there's kind of a pushback. So in your case, was there any kind of a negative response from your family when you said, you know, I'm going into pastoral ministry? No, not at all. Not at all. I, th- I think the family were very pleased for me, um, you know, because in fact, my parents really modeled a ministry, you know, because uh, their lives were very wrapped up in the church. They were doing so much for the church. Um, prayer meeting, they would go to they would go to the homes of shut-ins, take Bible study. Uh, they would do prayer meetings in their homes. And so my parents were lay ministers in a sense. My dad was an elder in the local church. And so it was really a natural thing for me now as I look back and the, the example that they set for me, it was a natural progression. Well, that is so good to know that, you know, you had the support from the, the, the parents. So walk me now through ministry, you know, during your undergrad years leading into working now as a pastor and, you know, yes. what was that like? So you would take me from the undergraduate years, you know, how difficult <laughs> was it for you? How easy, you know, yeah. the finances, maybe you had to board, you know, what was that period like first? And then later on, you could walk me through you know, sure. your journey as a pastor up to the point where you became even the president of the conference. In, Bite sizes. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, when I made the decision uh, to go into ministry, at the time I was earning a lot of money uh, as a plumber, engineer. And um, so making that decision to go from earning a lot of money to no money. And I remember going to Newbold, taking the entrance exam and passing. And they said to me, you need to bring 800 pounds as a, as your down payment when you come on the day. And I never had 800 pounds. And uh, I remember the tax man sending me this large bill uh, for 4,000 pounds. And I'm saying, but I never earned that money. But so first of all, the 800 pounds, I I'd taken out uh, what they called a unit trust back at the time. I, and when I took out the unit trust, I said to the gentleman, look, I'm going to college in two years. Therefore, I need this money. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. So when I called the, 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 the company now to say, look, I need my money. I've been putting this money in. They said, well, didn't he explain to you? I said, explain what? He said that this money will not mature until after five years. So all the money that that you've been putting in now has no value, has very little value because, you know, it, it needs time to gain traction. So you've got nothing, Mr. Davis. So I said to them, well, look, I'm still cashing it in. Just send me the money. They said, but all this money is just going into uh, establishing the fund. So there's not a lot for you to get. So I said, okay, well, I, I still have to cash it in. So they cashed it in and believe it or not, they sent me a check for 800 pounds, <laughs> just, just the amount that I needed to, to go to college. And the Lord uh, has been like that. There were times when we were at Newbold, we had no money and I'd pray, go over to the college and there was an envelope from somebody uh, who had sent us money. And, you know, we were there in the undergraduate years for, for four years. Um, I was not working. But uh, the Lord always provided for us. And then uh, because I was an engineer, I would, during the summer months, it was quite easy. I would call up a, a company that I'd worked for before. And I always, part of my work ethic was whatever company I work for, I must be able to call them up and say, this is Sam here. Can you give me a job? Uh, my work must be of that standard that when I called them, they'd say, yes, we want you to come. And that's exactly what happened. I'd call up companies that I work for and they said, yes, come. And so during the summer, I would earn enough money to pay for the following year's uh, school fees. And my final year at Newbold, I decided to um, to do the co-portering. So I did co-portering that last summer and that was very difficult. But uh, the Lord, again, allowed me to make a scholarship. So those were the undergraduate years. And one of the things that really impelled me while at, at Newbold was 
the fact that the imminence of the soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ, I didn't want the Lord to come and find me at college doing nothing, so to speak. <laughs> so, so I needed to get out. I needed to get out as soon as possible and be in the real work. And so uh, I did four years. And I remember uh, they at the time they were required us to go on to do the master's. You know, so that was another another two years. So I said, no, man, I don't want to do this. I don't want the Lord to come and catch me uh, studying. So I remember going to the head of theology and uh, I said to him, you know, Dr. Van Bemelen, I really want to leave. You know, I'm I'm ready for the work. And he said, it's, it's funny you're saying that because he said, I've got a, a memo here from the South England Conference. And as he read out the memo, we're looking for a man, a family man. We're looking for uh, somebody who has experience in the church. We're looking for uh, somebody. I said, but that's my CV. That's my CV. <laughs> you know, and so I said, Elder, that's me. So he said, all right, I'll set up an interview for you. And I remember going to South England to see uh, Dr. Reed, and, and I, I was hired and uh, that was it. You know, I never looked back. I think the disappointment for me was when I when I came into ministry and I got my first wage packet and you know that was just one and a half weeks wages for me <laughs> four years later but you know we 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 uh did not go into ministry for money uh, it was a vocation the lord was calling me and so I was very happy and never never once have I regretted that decision to to work for the lord and I, I remember my father-in-law, my that's my wife's dad. Um, when I when we made the decision to go and study for ministry, now he was a, a builder, a carpenter, and earning very well. And there were times when I'd go and work with him, and he said to me, "Look, I know that you can look after my daughter, you can provide for my daughter as a plumber, but this minister thing, I don't know about that, you know." <laughs> and so, uh, but the the years have proven that the Lord has been able to look after us. The Lord has been able to provide for us abundantly by his grace. Yes, the Lord does provide for us by his grace. And it's about faith because for you to be working full-time, then you have to give that up to go to university for four years. And then as you say, four years later, what you are exactly is... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, amazingly. You know, and at the end of the... The four years, I turned around and I said to my wife, you know, if we had at the beginning of the journey stood and said, where are we going to find £20,000 to go and study? We would never have done it because the task would have seen so hard. But this was like the children of Israel putting their foot forward and just God just opened up the way the Lord provided. We looked back and it had cost us £20,000 to go over those four years, our living expenses, even more than that. And God just provided for us. And we could look back and, and see the hand of the Lord just leading us through. Amen. Seeing God's hand leading us through. You know, we often say that God speaks to us. And sometimes I have heard persons ask, you know, how does God speak to you? And how do you know that God is really speaking to you? And so I'm throwing that question to you as an experienced, you know, man of God, you know, how does God speak to you? And then, you know, in a, in a general sense, you know, how does one know when God is really speaking to him or speaking to her? Do you know what? Uh, I think that God speaks to us in so many different ways. Uh, God can speak to us through a donkey. So if God can talk to you through the donkey, yeah, he can. He speaks to us through different human beings. Uh, he speaks to us through the word. He might even speak to you through the radio. You get up and you hear something. But you know, let's let's remember that there is no dissonance with God. The God God is the same. Bible tells us He doesn't change. I'm the Lord. I change not. And so, if you hear a voice saying "Go and kill somebody," you know that's not God's voice. You know that that's not the Lord. But uh, you're praying about something. And the answer can come to you from your child. The answer can come through you from through a member. 
the, the, the Lord speaks to us in different ways that you might even hear a voice uh, that, that the Lord is speaking to. So, But it's for you to be able to recognize that this is the Lord saying, this is the way, walk in it. You know, it can be just the voice of conscience. So God has a, a thousand and one different ways. You know, the Lord might even be able to speak to you through illness. Um, early in my ministry, one of the things I enjoyed doing was going into prison ministry. And I remember going into the prison and young men would come to me after I've been speaking and they would say to me, Pastor, I know that God put me in here to save my life. <laughs> you know, God put me in here to save my life. You know, and so it's for you to read the situation. It's for you to to know and to understand that God is trying to reach you. God can reach you through your situation. So I might be in prison. Uh, my business may fall apart. I might have an accident. So what's God telling me in this situation? And so uh, it's for us to interpret uh, what what uh, the signs that God sends to us and know that uh, we can trust him uh, as he speaks to us. You know, I really love the way you respond to that particular question because as you say, sometimes we think that God just speaks to us one way and there are many persons who focus on, okay, it has to be a dream, it has to be a dream, it has to be a dream. But as you have said, you know, there are so many different methods, medium that he speaks to us. And so we just have to recognize, as you say, that he's consistent about what his standards are. And so if That's something correct. doesn't match his standard, then we know it's not coming from God. Now, a very important thing that we face as Christians, I, I know you spoke about some struggles before, but you know, have you had doubts? And I'm talking about you no know, real doubts as you walk with Jesus over the years, whether it's a doubt with a decision, whether it's a doubt with your faith, you know, have you had some kind of doubts? And then if so, you know, what would have been your strategy for overcoming those doubts? Well, um, Yes, um, not doubt about God. <laughs> you know, God, God is a constant in my life, you know, so there's never uh, a doubt about whether he's there, but doubt about whether he is leading, doubt about how I'm going to come through this uh, this situation. There, there have been crises, um, you know, uh, and I, I remember there were early in my ministry, I was going through a very, very difficult, uh, very difficult patch you know, to the point where I was becoming depressed. Uh, there was a situation in my local church that had kind of spiraled and uh, the the person concerned, the person who was the main perpetrator had come out on the, the, the upper hand. He had managed to get the conference on his side and so on. And I'm an intern, you know, so I'm just starting out. So I remember going into the, the conference one day and I'm speaking to the conference treasurer and he says to me, Sam, I hear you're making a mess up there. <laughs> oh, man, you know, he hit me hard, Elder. You know, he hit me hard because I'm already struggling with the situation. And then there's confirmation because the treasurer, having served in that position now myself, I know that is the, the treasurer, the secretary, and the president. All of them all share that same view because this is coming from ADCOM. So it hit me hard, man. And, you know, it really sent me uh, into further depression, you know, <laughs> where I would I would lay at night and I'm crying out to the Lord and I'm asking the Lord. And, and, and then there comes the anger. There comes the anger because I remember laying in bed, you know, desiring revenge. You know, I'm going to go up to his house at midnight or, or three o'clock in the morning and slash his car tires. Forgive the pastor for thinking that way, you know. <laughs> and so you go through all of these things, you know, all of these thoughts. And, you know, the Lord taught me a very valuable lesson. The way the Lord resolved that situation, uh, I just got a call from uh, a person who wasn't even a member. And the funny thing was I'd gone to this man's house and he said to me, I don't believe in God, what you come to my house for? Because his wife was a member and I'd gone to see his wife and, you know, he came to the door and he said, um, you know, I don't believe in God and bloody, bloody, blood, you know, and, and I said to him, look, I'd lent his wife a book and I said, I didn't come here for this. So give me my book. And if you want to talk to me, you make an appointment. So I gave him my card 
this man, this man called me a few days later. This man who doesn't believe in God, he calls me and he said, Pastor, it's providential. <laughs> the man who doesn't believe in God is telling me it's providential. It's God's will. And he said he was on top of his wardrobe looking for something and a box fell down. And that box fell open and he saw everything. And he said, Pastor, I've got all the evidence. Everything you've been saying is true. And I said, would you mind sharing those letters with me? And he said, yes, as long as you promise that you will not photocopy them. And I went and I and I said, you know what, I'm going to take take the elder with me so that he can corroborate what I'm what, what's happening here. And so I went up there. He gave me the, all the letters. And that's how the Lord took me out of that situation. I was vindicated, but it, it was looking bad. You know, when you start out in ministry and you're you're trying to do your best and it looks like everything is just closing on you. And there was that confirmation from the treasurer, Sam, you're making a mess up there, man. <laughs> but the Lord, the Lord turned everything around, turned it around. And I saw that this was the hand of God in my ministry. The Lord was preparing me. The Lord was really preparing me because once I got to the presidency, I could look back and say, God took me through those uh, those hard knocks and, and, and those difficult situations as he was preparing me for something far greater to come. You know, I, I often hear this song, you know, right out <laughs> your storm. And there's something about this song that I particularly, you know, don't really or didn't like. But this week, especially from yesterday, I, I have been thinking about, you know, the whole song Riding Out Your Storm. And of course, you know, there's a lot of good messages in it because you rode your storm. And sometime later, you know, you got to the point where you were now in charge of yes, administration yes. at the conference. So. Using that same tagline, you know, riding out your storm, you know, what lessons would you have learned along the way, you know, just starting out as a babe in ministry to the point where you became, you know, like, let's say the grandfather in ministry, if I should use that word to describe you. Yes, I, I would say, look, just trust God, man. Don't don't try to fight God's battles for him. You know, uh, Moses at the Red Sea, he said, just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And throughout my ministry, I've seen the hand of God just leading, God guiding, God God fighting for, for me. And and I, I remember one pastor saying to me, you know, we went through a, a difficult situation in the presidency, and the pastor said to me, you see all these people? A few years from now, you're not going to see them anymore. <laughs> this is what this is this is what uh, Moses had said to the children of Israel. You know, you will see these people no more. And sure enough, the Lord just worked it out that all those who were my detractors, those who were antagonists, uh, the Lord just moved them out of the way. And you know, part of my ministry, I went to work in South Africa for three years, and that was a really difficult difficult time. And I remember, even though I look back on South Africa as probably one of the most enjoyable times in my ministry, um, I, I remember there was a really difficult situation there in the local church where there was a brother. He was uh, a person who was just bent on destruction and, and just destroying my reputation and so on. And I got depressed. In ministry, you, you have your highs and your lows. And I'm crying out to God, calling out to the Lord for deliverance. And I remember my first Christmas there in that church, the gossiping is there. And I started to write a, a sermon called Lethal Weapon 3, you know, uh, because the, the, the man's tongue and so on. And as I was writing that sermon, the Lord said to me, you can't do this because you're you're targeting an individual. You can't preach on the man, and so, 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 so I, I, I abandoned, I abandoned the sermon. You know, I abandoned it, and I went home to England for Christmas. Then in January, I came back, and the same thing continued. And my wife did not return with me at the same time, and so uh, the depression, uh, seeing my church being ravaged. And uh, I decided, you know, I can't, I really can't uh, do this anymore. So I have to deal with it because literally there is a wolf ravaging the sheep. And so 
I, I then wrote a sermon, Who Let the Dogs Out, using the Apostle Paul's language of ravening wolves and the dogs who are attacking the flock, you know. And so this sermon, Who Let the Dogs Out, and I remember we had the tittle-tattling dog, we had all kind of dogs, and um, the, the, the theological hound dog, all those sort of things, you know. And as I preached the sermon, the main protagonist and his wife just got up and they left the church that Sabbath and they never came back. And I just said, hallelujah. <laughs> it wasn't It wasn't what I, I, I didn't see it coming. I didn't know the Lord was going to work in that way. But, you know, they say if the, the, the cap fit wears it and he knew exactly what he was doing. And members came to me afterwards and they said, Pastor, you should never, never, never have preached that sermon. But I have no regrets whatsoever because um, I believe that when you see your flock being ravaged, then you have a duty of care uh, to those individuals. And so all along in my ministry, I've been seeing the Lord preparing me, the Lord preparing me uh, for greater responsibilities. You will hear me laughing and the listeners may may wonder because I I think there's a hip hop song <laughs> with that same title. <laughs> that exactly that's exactly where I took the sermon from. That is exactly where the title came from. <laughs> right. So they reckon <laughs> they recognize the title for sure. <laughs> yes, by by the Baha'i men. Yes, right. So I I can just hear that song playing in my head. <laughs> just just no. But on a, on a more you know somber note, uh. You you have been consistent, you know, with trusting God despite you know th- these challenges, as you said, you know, yes. ravenous wolves. And well, there are two things I want you to. Well, one thing before I toss this question, you know, people think about ministry or let us say church as, you know, this place where we have saints, you know, persons who trust God and will love Him dearly for their heart. But <laughs> you paint a picture. Which which is a reality that within the church, you know, not everyone really loves or maybe they may love God, but they are not following, you know, the principles, the teachings of God. So what could you say, let us say to a young member or even an up and coming pastor who is excited about ministry, you know, to spread God's word, but he may stumble upon, you know, members like this in the church or just a new convert, you know, what would you say to them as it relates to Know, being on the guard, on the lookout, I don't know what exact word to use. Um, but sure. Yes, one of the things I say to uh, new converts, you know, I have the privilege and I think the greatest privilege in ministry is standing in the baptistry and baptizing individuals who've made a commitment to Christ. And I say to them as they come up out of the water, keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't look at other members. Don't look at the elder don't look at the pastor. Keep your eyes on Jesus, because if you look on the pastor, you're going to be disappointed. If you look on the, the the members in the pew, you're going to be disappointed. Some people will bring you joy. Some people will bring you pain. And if you look on individuals too much, then you're going to be shocked and disappointed. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's the one, he's the reason why uh, you're making this commitment today. Because we, we have another phrase where we say that the, the the church is a hospital for sinners, you know. And so in the hospital, you get all kind of diseases. And that's the church. You get all kind of messed up individuals. And sometimes people say to me, oh, I'm leaving the church, you know, because you did this and you do that. And, you know, you people are like this. And I remember one day I was at the gym. I love to play badminton and I was at the gym and I saw this guy who had uh, left the church. He hadn't been to church for years. So I was very careful with my language. You know, I, I didn't want to say, well, you've left the church. And so I said, uh, I, my brother, I, I I see you've moved away from the Lord. He said, what? He said, me and the Lord tight. Is you hypocrites may have a problem with <laughs> and so yeah he was he was affronted that I should tell him that he's moved away from the Lord. So he's saying, No man, me and the Lord tight is you hypocrites. And so when people want to look at members and 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 to blame members for whatever, and if you look at you if you look at people, you're gonna find faults without a doubt. The only perfect person is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and I and I say to people, look, you're looking for the perfect church. 
when you find it, don't join it because you're going to mess it up. You know, so if you find a perfect church, don't join because you're going to mess it up. You know, so we are just messed up individuals. You know, what does the Apostle Paul say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Look to Jesus. Don't look at anybody else. Yes, look to Jesus. So the next question speaks to trusting God. And I know there's no one cap that fits all kind of a response. But what are some of the reasons why individuals find it difficult to trust God? You know, as I listened to you, as I said previously, I have seen that you have been consistent in terms of trusting God. So, But there are many persons, as soon as they you know there's a little shaking, you know, a 1.0 magnitude earthquake, not the seven. <laughs> they, are, they, they are fleeing, yeah, you know. Yeah. Why yeah, is it that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So many individuals fail to trust God and his plans for their lives because it's not just trusting him, but also the plans that he has for their lives. Look, you know, in the church, uh, there are many people who are just the girlfriends of Christ. They're not married to him. And any little thing come, they blow up, they're quick to run off, you know, and you're in this thing for the long haul. You know, if you are the bride of Christ, you know, when you're married, you're you're married to Christ and you're whether you the rough or the smooth comes, you're there. The girlfriend is there just for the handouts. You know, I, I remember early in my ministry, one elder said to me, This girl is in the church with two hands in and both feet out. So she's only there for what she can get. <laughs> both hands in and two foot out. And so um there are many people who are just hangers-on, they're just there. It's nice to sing in the choir. It's nice to have the ambiance and to, to have the, the kind of religiosity. You know, uh, I remember I was away from the church one Sabbath. I'd gone to my one of my churches, and I came back to this church, and I said, Elder, how was it? And he said, Pastor, there was a fight. I said, what do you mean, fight? He said, Pastor, there was a fight. And I said to him, a real fight? He said, Pastor, there was right. <laughs> two women catch up in other church. And, you know, there are individuals like that. You, you, it will happen. It will happen. And, you, you, you know, when you cultivate the spirit of Christ, when you cultivate the spirit of Christ and you have the personality of Christ. In fact, one of my favorite texts, you know, great peace of they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. And so you, you have the demeanor and the personality of Christ. You allow the, the the grace of Christ to wash over you. You know, I've heard it. I've heard people say, well, they're in the Sabbath school lesson and, and the discussion gets a little heated. Well, let's take this outside. This is stupidness. Stupidness. <laughs> you know, let's take this outside. You know, and, and, and so when you, when you have the spirit of Christ, when you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you allow... Uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to mold and to shape your personality and your character. And so all I can say to your question is that there are those in the church who don't know Christ. And if you know Christ, then, you know, you're willing to go through the hardship, you're willing to make the sacrifice, and you don't have to be fighting every battle. You don't allow the Lord and the grace of the Lord to be with you, uh, because you don't really know you don't know if you're a Christian until hardship comes, you know, because we go to church every Sabbath and, you know, we, we're in our nice clothes and people say, happy Sabbath. That was a nice song. You played the piano well and so on. But you only know if you're really a Christian when somebody say, elder, you know, that is not your gift. You shouldn't be singing up there. Don't sing again. <laughs> and you get vexed and you start to behave bad. And so you're not a Christian, bro. You know, you're not a Christian because, you know, when you're a Christian, you will know because the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is in you. You know, somebody will call you an idiot. Somebody will say you're a fool. And so on. that is really testing whether you know the Lord or not. We love to have the praises and so on. But what happens when somebody begins to throw dirt at you? Then what? The proof of the pudding is in their eating. As you mentioned, that, that thing um, will be winding down soon. But I was doing a presentation at church one Sabbath as well. And I decided to, to dub my presentation the six ball innings because I, I enjoy cricket. <laughs> so at the end, I remember the first person came and said, wow, I enjoyed the presentation so much because, you know, I'm a cricket fan. Another yeah. person said, you know, I heard you... <laughs> 
talking about cricket and I said, okay, maybe you're going to do a T20 or even one day international. But you did a test match. <laughs> Another member said, you know what? You almost caused me to die of hunger. <laughs> the presentation was so long. <laughs> so I can relate, you know, to sometimes, you know, you, you get different response from something that you just did and you yes. really have to focus on God himself. I must say thanks for taking the time out to share with us your story today. We have been speaking with Pastor Samuel Davis, affectionately known as Pastor Sam. He's the former or a former president of the South England Conference of Seventh-day Adventist Churches. I know I said we are wrapping up, Pastor, but you know, before you go, as is customary on this show, do you have any parting words that you'd love to share with our listeners? Yes, for sure. I would just like to tell them where I am now. You know, we made a decision to go to Spain upon retirement. I've done my doctorate in uh, natural medicine. And so, you know, I, I would say that we've moved, taken ministry sideways uh, because I'm not retired. I think, as you said, I'm retired, <laughs> retreaded. <laughs> and uh, so we're there in Spain and we want to teach people uh, how to maintain their health. We want to use the um, the health message as an entering wedge uh, for the gospel. We're learning the language. We're seeking to uh, touch lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so ministry is still integral uh, to our lives. And I just want to say, uh, you know, in closing that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. We are seeing the signs all around us. There is absolutely no doubt that Jesus is on his way. And so every one of us just need to be uh, ready. We need to make sure that we have eyes that are spiritually sensitive, prophetically sensitive to the signs of the times so that we can be ready for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about being ready for Christ's soon and eminent return. You've been in tune to Upward Way. Do join us again next week when we'll have another interesting guest sharing his or her story of faith. You're invited to subscribe to weekly episodes on the Apple, AWR, Loud Voice, Spotify, or Stitcher apps. You're also invited to visit Upward Way Facebook page. Click like and leave a comment. And of course, if you are impressed by the work that we are doing and you want to contribute to the ministry, then please feel free to do so. Until then, I'm Marlon Walters saying goodbye. May God bless you. Thank you very much. God bless you, sir. You've been Thank listening you. to the Upward Way podcast, the number one audio production show for people who want encouragement and reassurance in a muddled world.